So first I'd like to thank Mary for inviting me to speak tonight and to thank all of you for coming out on this rainy night. I kept thinking, I was not crazy about making the drive. (laughs) So I was happy that people showed up. Uh, I actually used to live in Santa Cruz in the late 70s, but so much has changed here since then. Like, we didn't have anything like this in those days. Um, There's so much to say about Menindra. I could be here for hours, but I'd like to make the trip over the hill tonight, so I won't talk forever. I want to start off by saying that I did bring some books, and they're over there, and I and and there'll be um, and cards. You can just pick up cards for free. This has been entirely a Donna project. I worked on it for six years, and the money will go to establish a scholarship fund at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in memory of Manindra. So. Um, I'm going to talk about him, but I also would like to bring in some background information. And some of you may recognize his name, and he, his, may, his name might not be familiar to others of you. But surely you know Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Ram Dass, Daniel Goldman, and Kamala Masters, James Barras, um, Sharda Rogelle, Howard Cohn, Christopher Titmus, Christina Feldman, and I could just go on and on and on naming the people who originally studied with him. To our great good fortune, he is a grandfather of the mindfulness movement, of the Vipassana movement in the West. And it is because of him, in great part, along with some other people, that we have a mindfulness movement. And we now have mindfulness in education, psychology, healthcare, law, um, sports, almost every arena. Um, I have a little friend who turned nine in January. And I was at her house, and I saw a picture of her in a mudra position. And I said, Jessica, what is that? Oh, we have mindfulness in my class. <laughs> and, she, she kind of, and even her five-year-old brother is doing mindfulness in his class. I was elated, to say the least. One of the reasons why Manindra is so important is that not simply because he was a meditation master and a Pali scholar and a living embodiment of the Dharma and a grandfather of the Vipassana movement, but as Ramdas has said, and he wrote this in his introduction to Joseph's first book, Manindra had so thoroughly absorbed the Buddhist teaching after deep practice, as well as learning the entire Pali canon, that he grokked the Dharma. Some of you look old enough (laughs) to remember that term. He totally merged with the Dharma. There was no difference between the Dharma and himself. And in that way, he was a great example for people. 
wasn't just about scholarship, it wasn't about intellectual understanding, it was about true experience. So those who encountered him got a sense of what it's really like when someone actually expresses through his very presence the qualities that lead to awakening. However, lest you think that Manindra was perfect, I'm here to break any illusions that you might have. He was a human being who was fallible, who had his own quirks and idiosyncrasies. He had his own unique personality. And he also wasn't an arahant. He hadn't reached the final of the four stages of insight and awakening. He readily admitted that he had not yet fully completed the path. Nevertheless, he developed and exemplified the qualities that are essential to awakening. And these qualities are available to all of us. That's why he was so important. Because he lived the qualities, and you experience what they're like just by being in his presence. So what I decided to do, and I, I mean organizing the stories that 200 people around the world told me, in addition to transcriptions of interviews with him and early Dharma talks that he gave, and I thought, how am I going to organize all this information so that people can get something out of it? And as I listened to people's stories, I realized they told about these qualities. And one story might tell about his metta, his loving kindness, but at the same time, it was also about his patience or about some other quality. So I arbitrarily decided, okay, these stories go in this chapter and these stories in this chapter, And each chapter deals with a different quality. And I boiled it down to 16 qualities. There are more, but they're all grouped into those 16. And if anybody here can live out those qualities, it just makes for a wonderful, great human being. And there's nothing esoteric, arcane, or exclusive about any of this, which is also why Manindra's teaching, you know, I don't think this is, it is, okay, Um, why his teaching was so important for those of us here, especially in the West, but also this occurred in Asia. We're householders. We're not monks or nuns in a monastery. So how do we live out the Dharma under these conditions. The traffic, the problems at home or at work, all the things that happen all, every day in our lives. How do we live out the Dharma? One of his students early on, Jack Engler, asked him, Manindraji, what is the Dhamma? And Manindraji, without pausing, said, The Dhamma is living the life fully. Wasn't anything arcane, esoteric, or exclusive. Wasn't something ethereal, or up in the heavenly realms, or whatever other realms you might wish to explore. 
living the life fully. Shambhala is the publisher of the book, and they decided they couldn't use living the life fully. It was Manindraji's British way of speaking English, Indian British way of speaking English. So we changed it to living this life fully. So before I talk about some of the qualities that he embodied, I want to give you a little bit of background because I think most people don't know how we all got here. I mean, aside from being born into this human body, but how we all came to practice Vipassana. And it goes back to Burma. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Burma was, well, Buddhism in Burma was really challenged because of the introduction of colonialism and with it Christianity. Some of you may have read about this. Uh, Most people don't know. So there were a couple of Burmese teachers, Ledi Sayadaw and Mahasi Sayadaw. You may have heard of them. And they began to emphasize the personal realization of Dharma in everyday life. In other words, by practicing Vipassana compared to practicing very deep, intensive concentration in which you have to be in seclusion on a retreat. But Vipassana, you know, you can practice standing online at the grocery store, sitting behind the steering wheel of your car. It's something you can do in every moment. And this was very liberating because it allowed everybody, lay people as well as monks, you didn't have to enter a monastery. And this was really important for bringing the practice forward to householders all the way to the West, from Asia to the West. There's a a long story of how Manindra got to Burma. I'm not going to go into that right now, but when he did go to Burma, the story's in the book, his teacher was Mahasi Sayadaw. So two of these, one of these two instrumental teachers. And at the center in Rangoon, you learn Vipassana not through large lectures, but personal interviews with your teacher. And you got the teacher's advice and supervision, which is something we do at our retreats. And in this regard, the teacher was not some highfalutin, big shot guru, but a Kalyanamita, a spiritual friend. And Menendra was so much a Kalyanamita. He was accessible and available to his students all the time, even in the middle of the night. There's a great story in this book about a, um, a Danish man who, oh no, it was a Swedish man who um, was having a terrible crisis in the middle of the night, and Menindra woke up to help him cross the threshold back to sanity. He, his compassion was so strong. So when you are a Kalyanamita in this way, it became not essential that you're an arahant in order to teach people. So we have so many teachers who are not arahants, even Manindra wasn't an arahant, and it's okay 
because to have a spiritual friend, to have a spiritual guide, is what we need to move us along the path. So this model of learning Dharma, Manindra brought back with him to Bodh Gaya in 1966. And there's also a story in the book about hundreds of people going to the pier when Manindra got on the ship to go back to India. It was so important what he was doing. They felt that Manindraji was fulfilling a prophecy that 2,500 years after the Buddha, he was going to bring the Dharma back to India. I don't know how many of you know that basically, not Hindu Dharma, but Buddhist Dharma had died out in India centuries and centuries before. In fact, the Mahabodhi temple in Bodhgaya, which is the navel of the Buddhist world, it had been functioning <coughs> excuse me, as a Hindu temple. They didn't know until British archaeologists had a dig, and they uncovered material that indicated, actually, this is a Buddhist temple. And then Nehru, upon independence from uh, Britain, Nehru decided, okay, we're going to give the temple back to the Buddhists. And there was a big hullabaloo because the, the moth, the Hindu leader of the monastery, didn't want to give it up because it was a way of making a lot of money through puja. Anyway, lots of stories about that because Manindra became the first Buddhist superintendent of the Mahabodhi temple since... I believe it was the 15th century. And he was the first one. And he left his position at the Mahabodhi temple to go to Burma to practice. And after nine years, he came back and freely taught the Dharma. So, okay, we're back to 1966. He arrives in Burma, in the Bodh Gaya. And in 1967, Joseph Goldstein shows up. Ta-da! <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> Sharon came and Ramdas came and everybody was showing up in those years. And they were learning from Manindra. They were also taking retreats with Goenka. Goenka, Manindra were Dharma brothers. They had gotten to know each other in Burma. So this is just a little bit of background. There's, what, there's much more in the book but just to give you a sense of how we came to be sitting here tonight, it was, um, a, well, you know, independent arising, right? Independent co-arising. Just one thing led to another thing, led to another thing. And I see Manindra as absolutely pivotal in the transmission of Dharma to the West. And maybe for the people who don't know, it would be really, because I think there's some people here who might not even know that then Joseph and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield founded the Insight Meditation Society. And Jacqueline Mandel-Schwartz. And Jacqueline Mandel-Schwartz. And then Jack came here and started Spirit Rock. So that's kind of where we hook in, because I, Jack was my first teacher. So that's the, the lineage. Right, yeah. and, and Jack's lineage is Thai, but he also right. knew Manindra. <clears throat> so, 
So, let's see. Um, so many stories, but, you know, I'm going to start off with something that Joseph said, and he put this in the foreword to the book, because it gives you um, a good summary of Manindra's value and importance. So Joseph says, one of the first things that Manindra said to me when we met in 1967 was that if I wanted to understand the mind, I should sit down and observe it. The great simplicity and pragmatism of this advice struck a very resonant chord within me. There was no dogma to believe, no rituals to observe. Rather, there was the understanding that liberating wisdom can grow from one's own systematic and sustained investigation. I think this had enormous appeal for the Westerners who went seeking in Asia. Because here we were in the United States, most people of our generation were fed up with their birth religion, fed up in the sense of not finding anything meaningful or spiritually satisfying in it. Rituals seemed empty. And our government was lying to us about the Vietnam War, among many other things. So people were looking for something different, something that could sustain them without uh, something that would be full of integrity and meaningful. And it turned out to be very practical, as opposed to empty ritual. I said earlier that Manindra was a fallible human being. And I think this is important because I know Kamala Masters, who was very close to him, and it was through her that I met him when, uh, when I lived on Maui. She said, because he wasn't perfect, because he was a regular human being, it gave me hope that I could progress on the path too, that I didn't have to be perfect, that it was okay to be a human being, to not have to be a saint. Manindra embodied these qualities through his own unique personality. And in Burma, there's a saying that even when the bottle is empty, the smell is still there. And this is how they explain that you can be empty in the Dharma sense, you know, empty of ego. But in this incarnation, you still have your personality. The smell of your personality is still there. And Manindra had his own particular personality, which was quite quirky, according to many stories that people have told me, and according to what I remember about him uh, on Maui. For example, um, Kamala was, well, Kamala and I were both working full-time, but 
if she couldn't pick him up or take him to the doctor or I, then I would take him or whatever it was. And so we were doing these errands. And one day she took him with her to do some errands. Some of you may have heard the story. Um, when I used to live on Maui, we didn't have any big box stores. They're all, all kinds now. But we had a big Long's drugstore. And whatever you wanted, whether it was a snorkel <laughs> or pharmaceuticals, that was the only place you could get anything. So Kamala pulls up, and Menindra's got his eyes closed, and he's resting in the car. And she said, um, I'll, I'll be right back. I'm just going to go get a few things. And he said, where are we? And Kamala said, Long's. And Menindra perked up. Shopping? <laughs> are we going shopping? And I remember when, when later in the day Kamala told me this story and I was aghast. I was thinking, he's a spiritual teacher. What do you mean he's into shopping? I, you know, I was like, very judgmental. That's all I can say. Very judgmental. But it turned out when she completes the story, she goes in with him and she said, I think you mentioned you wanted an umbrella. And they were in the, that section of the store. And he says, no, I want all the umbrellas. She says, you want all the umbrellas here? She said, he said, yes. So, of course, the immediate reaction could be greed, Right? One of the three poisons. But it wasn't. It was just the opposite. He said, you know, where I live, people have so little, they have nothing. I want to bring these umbrellas back for all these people. They can't afford to buy an umbrella. So it really got me because I was seeing things superficially. And until you hear the other side of the story, you don't realize that actually where this is all coming from is a deep sense of dana, of generosity. So I want to tell you a story about Manindra's generosity. Um... In Asia, they don't teach you to meditate first. First thing you learn is the quality of dana. And when you're a child and you're not able to do it yourself, a parent brings the child outside as the monks do their alms round, and they help the child to scoop out food to put in the monk's bowl. And when the child is able, old enough to do it, that's the first thing that they do. So they're already instilling this quality of dana. Manindra was so generous, he would give you anything he had. One person, Dhammaruwan Chandrasiri uh, from Sri Lanka, told me that when he was a little boy, Manindra would come and visit the family in Kandy. And one time, uh, there were guests, and they brought this bowl, brass bowl, in the shape of the Bodhi tree, and they gave it to Munindra as uh, an offering. 
Menendra immediately turned around and gave it to Dhamma one. He didn't hold on to anything. Just immediately gave. If he had food, he gave you food. If he had um, teachings, of course, he shared the teachings so generously. So in, um, I should say also that I collaborated on this book with Robert Pryor, who is director of the Antioch Education Abroad Program in Buddhist Studies in Bodhgaya, where Munindra taught for many, many years. In late 1996, Robert Pryor asked Paul Choi to bring some presents to Manindra at his family's home in Calcutta. Manindra had been too ill that fall to teach in Bodhgaya. Being new to Dharma, Paul had neither a clear idea of who Manindra was, nor a great interest in being with him. Rather, he was eager to play tourist in the city. But his unexpected experience of Manindra's big-hearted nature left a lasting impression. And this is what Paul recalls. We chatted a little bit and Manindra said to me, Oh, you must stay this weekend with me and we will practice meditation together. (laughs) I kick myself now because if I had the opportunity again, I would take it in a heartbeat. But at that point, I didn't even have reverence for the Dharma. So my thought was, who is this guy anyway? Why would I want to spend a weekend meditating with him? I said, no, thank you. Then he said, you must at least stay the night and we'll meditate. And I said, no, no, no. He said, okay, at least you must stay the afternoon and we could talk about the Dharma. Again, I conveyed that I wasn't interested. He just smiled and said, okay, well, let me feed you. I remember quite distinctly sitting down at his table and how carefully he attended to me, making sure I ate well. I begin to cry every time I recollect this. He kept standing up to serve food into my plate with such kindness, warmth, and generosity. That was the extent of Paul's interaction with Manindra. Yet he says, it's quite remarkable As I've continued to explore the Dharma, my love for him has grown, even though I never saw him again. Especially when I'm on retreat, that memory will come back. Sometimes it will make me laugh and fill me with such joy, because I felt and I feel today that that was such an example of his awakening, his selflessness and generosity. Paul continues, There was not a trace at least not that I could feel, of him thinking, doesn't he know who I am? What I felt was him just doing whatever he could to serve me. That has continued to reverberate through my life. I make a point of reflecting on that regularly, whether it's before teaching a meditation course or even going to see patients because I'm training as a psychiatrist right now. I feel very grateful to him. So that is a reflection of what I said earlier about his not being some big hotshot guru. He never tooted his horn. He just saw, okay, I'm willing to teach. But unlike missionaries who went around the world forcing their religion down native people, indigenous people's throat, 
he said, okay, you don't want to, that's fine. Then at least let me feed you. I must give you something. And you probably know what the Buddha said, not to pass, not to let a meal pass without sharing with someone if you can. So that's just a sign of Manindra's generosity in addition to buying all the having come all by all the uh, umbrellas and longs for him. <laughs> he was also extremely curious. Um, Dhammavichaya is the quality of investigation, of specifically investigating the Dhamma. But Manindra was curious about everything. He ran his students ragged because he wanted to know and see and do everything when he was visiting in the West. One of his old students, who must remain anonymous, told me the story of running into Manindra after an LSD trip. And this was in India. So the guy's coming down from his trip, and he runs into Manindra, and Manindra's wondering, you know, how are you doing and everything, and what are you doing? And Manindra insisted that he sit down and describe every detail to him of his LSD trip. Imagine trying to do that. He was curious about everything. He never took LSD himself, but he wanted to know, what's that like? On another occasion, uh, he was in the DC, Washington, D.C. area because Mahasi Sayadaw was here on a tour. And uh, somebody who was, who was with him uh, as an attendant, had gone out to see a movie. And when he got back to the Dharma Center, he couldn't get in because everything was already locked for the night. So he starts walking around the building trying to figure out what to do, and he sees Manindra's window is open. And as though it's the most normal, regular thing in the world to do, Manindra calls out to him and he says, climb in, climb in, just come in through my window. Where have you been? What have you done? I went to the movies. He had to describe every scene in the movie to him. It turned out to be uh, the Australian film Picnic at Hanging Rock. Anyway, Sharon and Joseph both told me this story independently. They were in Washington with Menindra, and he was very curious about things, a lot like the Dalai Lama, who was a friend of his. He first met the Dalai Lama when he trekked through the mountains to Tibet and met the Dalai Lama when he was 15 because they were carrying Buddhist relics to the different uh, Buddhist kingdoms. Anyway, so they took him to the Air and Space Museum in Washington. I guess it's part of the whole Smithsonian Institution. And it was one of Manindra's early visits to the United States, so he wanted to see every single exhibit. Now, you must understand, Joseph and Sharon were both young adults. Manindra was already decades older. So, they, you know, he just was going on and on and on, and independently of each other, Joseph and Sharon decided to take a rest. So 
when Sharon says when she woke up from her nap on a bench, she looked over and there was Joseph <laughs> taking a nap too. The two of them had just gone to sleep and Manindra had not stopped the whole time. He was just going curious to see every exhibit. So imagine applying that kind of curiosity to your Dharma practice. You could go pretty far. So there were many qualities that made Manindra endearing to his students. His wisdom, his patience, his loving kindness, his compassion, his mindfulness, his generosity, his determination, sometimes that got in the way, <laughs> um, his equanimity, his conviction in the Dharma, we say in the West faith, but it's not really exactly the same thing. Um, his relinquishment, I mean, all these 16 qualities. And part of that was he was endearing because you could be with him like any other person. And so Joe DiNardo told me, you wouldn't expect to invite Mahasi Sayadaw to your family reunion. Right, imagine. But you could go anywhere with Manindraji. To Niagara Falls, to Disney World, or shopping at flea markets. He loved flea markets because you could bargain, which is how it is in India. You know, you have to negotiate. So I'm going to tell you uh, a story that Ginny Morgan from Missouri told me. <clears throat> Manindra especially delighted in going to flea markets to buy gifts, and he'd bring back suitcases, suitcases full of stuff to give to people. One time, this is just a little aside, one time he gets to the airport in Boston, he'd just been at IMS, and he's got so much overage, you know, when they weigh the stuff, that it would be hundreds of dollars to pay to put this stuff on the airplane. And the airline agent is not taking any excuses. I mean, just there's no way. He could be begging for the children in India all he wants, but it's not going to work. So they didn't know what they were going to do. The guy who took him to the airport didn't even have a credit card, so there was no way, and they're just stuck there. The last minute, one of his old students comes running into the airport to say goodbye to Manindra, and they told her what the story was. She whips out her credit card, and he goes off with suitcases full of stuff. But when he gets to India and goes through customs, I mean, has anyone here been to India? Okay, so the people at customs took what they wanted. People are paid so little that they have to take where they can find something to take. So all that effort, and then he, he doesn't have it to give away. Not all of it, anyway. So back to the flea market. Um, Ginny Morgan tells this story. And this was a small flea market in Massachusetts. We went up to one booth where Manindra saw a little piano keyboard for children. 
The gentleman behind the table looked like he'd had a difficult night and wasn't with it that morning. He appeared tired and kept rubbing his eyes. Manindra held this toy up and said, How much for this? The man looked at him and said, Ten dollars. Manindra responded, Would you take five? And the guy said, Are you crazy? Give it up. I'm not going to do it. Manindra put it down and said, Please, I want to take it to the children in India. <laughs> this man said, Ah, jeez, and he hit himself in the forehead with his hand. He walked back and forth behind his counter, and then finally he got down on his hands and knees, and he dug around in a box. Manindra was very patient. The guy pulled out two batteries and plunked them down on top of the keyboard and handed it over to Manindra. He said, I don't know why I'm doing this. Five dollars, and I'll throw in the batteries. Then he turned to me, meaning Ginny and said, Lady, I bet you bring him to do all your shopping. (laughs) Manindra folded his hands in the prayer position and looked at this man full on and said, May you be happy and peaceful. May you live with ease and well-being. And may you come to know full freedom from suffering. I watched a red flush spread up this guy's neck and into his face. He seemed really shocked. He turned to me and said, Lady, we need this stuff. And I said, Yes, we all need this stuff. Then a woman in the next booth came running up and said, For crying out loud, it's Gandhi! <laughs> he he knew Gandhi, but I mean he, he right so he had the same eyeglasses. He was bald. anyway. Never mind that Gandhi had been dead for years. <laughs> so here he was being practical trying to spend less money rather than more in order to be generous to a child back in India. And it wasn't just about a financial coup. Oh, I got him down five dollars. It wasn't that at all. He ended the whole thing by sending metta to this perfect stranger. And he didn't think oh, who is this guy? Maybe he's some redneck or who knows what, you know, or maybe he's hung over because he, was, he had a bad night. Who knows whatever, what someone might think. He didn't think anything like that. He just saw a human being in front of him and emanated metta toward him. You know, I think um, we're running short, so uh, I think maybe I will... I'll tell another story by Ginny, and... it will reinforce why 
Manindra's way of being in the world and teaching the way he taught means so much to all of us today in our householder practice. In the late 1970s, when Manindra first began to tour and teach in the West, an invitation from Greg Galbraith brought him to Columbia, Missouri, where he stayed with Ginny Morgan. Ever eager to share Dharma, Manindra suggested that she gather some Buddhists to ask him questions. At that time, there were no practice groups or sanghas in the area. However, at Ginny's request, a community radio station announced that a spiritual teacher would be at her house and people could come for an hour to talk with him. Ginny recalls, Sure enough, some people showed up. One of them was a 16-year-old boy who had a Carlos Castaneda book. He's carrying it under his arm. He was just the sweetest, most open human being. The others were kind of intimidated by Manindra, but this boy could not get enough of him. He sat as close as he could. When Manindra asked, does anybody have questions? This boy said, yes, I want to know how to leave my body. (laughs) Manindra looked at the boy and said, you want to leave your body? And the kid said, yes, you see, I'm not happy. My whole life is miserable, and I just can't stand it another minute. I want to leave. And Jenny comments that this was amazing, Because the boy's demeanor was not miserable, he seemed interested, joyful, and energetic. Manindra looked at him, patted him on the knee, and said, If you're not happy in body, you're not happy out of body. (laughs) (laughs) The boy gasped and said, Oh, well, Carlos Castaneda says, Manindra patted him on the knee again and said, I know of this man. He's not happy either. (laughs) Please, if you can listen to me, I will save you many steps. Yes, these kinds of mystical things are possible, but you will get caught in this power and you'll go around and around many lifetimes. Please listen to me now, and I will save you many steps. Be an ordinary person. Get married, have children, cook breakfast. Be present in your life. And just to add another story about that. There was so much fascination with magical powers. Um, Many of you probably remember. And uh, this was especially in the early 80s when Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was teaching so-called flying. Does anybody remember that? that? Yeah, okay. It was... um, so one of Manindra's students, uh, Marvel Logan, he's now a monk, Bhante Vimalaramsi. Anyway, he asked Manindra what he thought about this, you know, this flying, teaching flying, and Manindra wanted to know how much the course cost. Practical, 
And when Marvel told him it was about $2,000, Menindra quipped, I can fly around the world for $2,000. <laughs> okay, said Marvel, I guess I know what you think about that then. Menindra was not only being practical about money, he was also saying that ultimately such abilities are inconsequential. Asked whether he could teach his students to fly, Menindra said, Oh yes, I could teach you, I could teach you that. But it would be easier to buy a plane ticket. <laughs> so I'm going to leave you with something that with the way that Manindra described meditation as something to bring away with you and hopefully to keep in your mind and heart. Everything is meditation in this practice. Even while eating, drinking, dressing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Whatever you are doing, everything should be done mindfully, dynamically, with totality, completeness, thoroughness. Then it becomes meditation, meaningful, purposeful. It is not thinking, but experiencing from moment to moment, living from moment to moment, without clinging, without condemning, without judging, without evaluating, without comparing, without selecting, without criticizing. Choiceless awareness. Meditation is not only sitting. It is a way of living. It should be integrated with our whole life. It is actually an education in how to see, how to hear, how to smell, how to eat, how to drink, how to walk with full awareness. To develop mindfulness is the most important factor in the process of awakening. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.